Welcome to the Start Your Journey podcast, helping Atlantic Canadian student-athletes navigate the NCAA recruiting process. Each episode, you can eavesdrop on conversations with NCAA student-athletes, past and present, coaches, parents, and learn about the latest tools to boost your chances of getting discovered. Here's your host, former pro hockey player, digital marketing entrepreneur, and green smoothie drinker, Chris Nadeau. But before we get started, here are our friends, Pearl Jam. This is episode number seven with Adam King, a small town boy from Oromocto, New Brunswick. In 2004, Adam was the number one recruit to Dartmouth College out of Eastern Canada and was a resounding academic and athletic force at Oromocto High School. Adam competed on Dartmouth's varsity squash team for four years and was team captain and MVP during his senior year. Adam shares his story along with so many tips that student-athletes and parents must hear and which will definitely help you with your journey. But before we dive in today, I want to give you a quick heads up about our new all-in-one platform to help build your online student-athlete profile. Our all-in-one platform gives you everything you need to promote yourself to coaches. Whether you're just getting started in grade 9 or you need a fast-track option to get the word out during your grade 12 year. Either way, our powerful platform helps you get discovered by the coaches you want to play for. Start your free trial today at adosportsrecruiting.com. No credit card is required. And without further ado, let's dive into this one with squash player extraordinaire, Adam King. Uh, your favorite go-to order at your favorite maritime restaurant. Sure. Well, I'm I'm a big fan of diners. Um, it, yeah. I, I, it's a bit strange, I guess, like the greasy spoon kind of restaurants. That's I have they have a soft spot in my heart for those. Um, and kind of more specifically, I'm an all day breakfast kind of guy. Um, oh yeah, so I'm with you. There's a there's a really nice, oh, really nice. There's a nice hole in the wall diner here in Fredericton called the Sunshine uh, Sunshine Diner. Um, okay. I, I am a quite a big fan for their kind of all day breakfast. They have, you know, nice diner coffee. You go in, it's no frills, but it's, it's exactly what I look for in a place. And I've, I'm very boring when I go there. I've probably been there a hundred times and I think I've, I've ordered the same thing about 99 of those times. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of as exciting as I get, but I, I'm a big fan sunshine diner in Fredericton. If you're, if you like breakfast, I, I highly recommend. So where is the sunshine diner actually in Fredericton? It's downtown. It's uh, it's downtown ish. It's it's off the Woodstock yeah. Road. Um, okay, yeah. You know, if you know where the Delta Hotel is or the Diplomat Restaurant, it's right across yes. the street from there. Oh, I'll have to check it out. I'm in Fredericton often, and uh, I'm a big breakfast guy. I could eat breakfast for every meal, uh, so uh, definitely we'll check out the Sunshine Diner. There you go. Let me know what you think. Now, Yes, for sure. So when you played squash, would you be like an all day breakfast guy before your squash matches? <laughs> I had to be a little more careful about it back <laughs> in those days. Um, yeah, I still had a soft spot for for a nice bacon and egg breakfast. But I was uh, 
a little more regimented in my diet back then. I was, I was a little more responsible. <laughs> I get it totally. So I guess to talk, uh, to kind of lead us into uh, your squash playing days, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how, you know, Adam became a squash player to, uh, you know, now you're a lawyer. Uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, because I'll be honest, I have never met or spoken to a lot of squash players in my lifetime. So this is awesome to be speaking with you about squash. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I, I just recently started playing squash and I love it. So I'd love to hear your history and how you got to be in a, to be an NCAA squash player. Certainly. And, and as a squash player, it's, it's very nice and unusual for someone to be interested to talk to you about that. So, so thank you for that. I'll, I'll take it when I can get it. Um, so I guess my story kind of, I, I mentioned a bit earlier offline, I'm from Ormocto, New Brunswick, kind of a small town here just outside of Fredericton. Um, and, you know, I, when I was a kid, I grew up playing a, a whole bunch of different types of sports. That's kind of what I did when I was a kid. I played basketball, volleyball, softball, soccer, golf, tennis, badminton, and squash, kind of anything that was fun and running around. I was, that's kind of what, what I liked to do when I was a kid. Um, and I guess squash would be the, the obvious one to, to jump on a little bit there. Um, but Ormukto is kind of key for that too. My father was in the military on base. Ormukto is a big military town. Um, and squash, there's a bunch of squash courts on base at the time. And my father used to play a little bit, you know, never competitively, but recreationally him and some guys from work would go out on base and play squash. So when I was about 11 or 12 years old, he took me out with him and some of the guys one day and I had never heard of squash in my life. Didn't know what it was. Um, tried it out a couple of times and thought it was fun. It was really unusual. Didn't know anyone else who really played it. Um, so it was something I just kind of, kind of got attracted to just because it was, it was unique. Um, and as, as an 11 or 12 year old, it was, it was something strange to do. And it was a lot of fun, a lot of a really good workout. Um, yeah. Which, you know, and it, it's it's a bit random to be a squash player, not a hockey player or something as the, the stereotypical New Brunswicker might be. Um, but no, I, so squash was kind of really important for me as a kid. It was kind of what I, I dove in kind of a hundred percent and was really lucky back then. There was a kind of a small group of us, some kids a bit older than me and, and a big squash family um, that we, we trained together. We traveled around together. So I think it would have been, it would have been quite, quite difficult at the time to to jump into something like that on your own um it was mm -hmm. nice to have a, a bit of a it is an individual sport but it was nice to have a little bit of a team dynamic and you know we were training for things like canada games or nationals or provincials or whatever it was there's always some some goal in mind to to have some training camps or, or travel around to some tournaments yeah okay that's cool so do, do you mind if i ask a quick question there absolutely so so you were 11 or 12 and playing all kinds of sports and you, you, you got into squash and I'm just, I, I'd like to hear, cause you, you touched on, you did have a group of kids that you could train with that were slightly older. Um, but I, I can't imagine there being lots of structure for squash training, but I could be totally wrong. Was it something that you guys drove on your own or was there actually programming in place? I mean, you're definitely not wrong that, you know, we, in the normal course of things back then, I don't think for squash there was much in terms of structure. Um, yeah. But I, I think that that lends itself to how how fortunate I was at the time was, you know, there was this family of the Reed family. There was Alan Reed was the father and he had three sons, um, Patrick, Mike and Bernie. And they were all older than me and they were all kind of the best squash players around town. 
Um, yeah. So, so kind of, I jumped in with that family in terms of all the training and the travel and the all the the tournaments and things like that. So there was there typically would not be much structure to it, but I I kind of came through at the right time when there was that family kind of running the show around Fredericton um, yeah. for for squash at the time, and I, I was very fortunate to to grow up playing with those guys, and it made it much easier to to have a group of people with add some structure, do some drills you know, set some goals and travel around the tournaments and things. Cause like I said, I think it would have been, it, it might've ended up very differently if it was, if there was no one else playing it at the time. Yeah. It probably would have been pretty difficult if you were the only kid and you'd probably get lonely pretty quick or wouldn't <laughs> want to play with a bunch of old men all the time. Right. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so when you started that uh, and we'll get into how you moved on to NCAA and all that, but how, how often were you uh, training uh, a week? And also, did you keep playing other sports? Yeah, I, I definitely did keep playing other sports. That was always kind of important to me um, to not yeah. be kind of, you know, one dimensional. And, you know, you want to put enough time in into something to be good at it. But I, I feel especially as a kid, it kind of, you know, it's you're too young to really know what you want to do or know what you're what you enjoy the most. And I enjoyed playing a whole bunch of different sports back then and, and still do today. Um, so it, it wasn't something, you know, my love of playing squash wasn't something that justified, you know, ditching a bunch of other sports for me. Um, yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of benefit to that too, is, you know, playing different things, you're, you're moving in different ways, different muscles, different types of fitness. I think it, it makes, you know, even if your goal is just to be a squash player, I think playing a lot of those other sports in, in the off season or at different times, will make you a better squash player. Um, yeah. But really, I think, so I, I definitely kept playing the other sports. And I think in terms of my squash specific type of training, I would say kind of the average week, I'd probably be playing two to three times a week. Um, and there are certainly times when it was more intense than that. If there was a lot of tournaments on the weekends or things like that, it, it could get pretty hectic. Um, yeah. But I, th I think my average week would probably be two to three times playing squash. Um, and then certainly some other sports kind of sprinkled in on the other days to kind of just keep, keep out and doing things. And then if there was a tournament that weekend, you'd go, let's say to St. John or Moncton and play like a bunch of matches and then be sore Sunday and start right back <laughs> out of that week. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, that, that would yeah. kind of be the typical approach. And especially for something like squash, um, a lot of the tournaments were, you know, there were a few around Fredericton and, and Moncton and St. John, but not a whole lot you had to kind of go to Halifax or PEI um, to get a lot of the good, the good squash back then. Um, okay. So some of that's kind of where the bulk of the tournaments were. And, and like I said, this, some of the other folks that I was playing with at the time, you know, most of the tournaments were in Atlantic Canada, but we did go out to Ontario a couple of times or to Quebec or Montreal, or, you know, we did a bit of a fair amount of traveling um, because you quickly realize in a lot of these sports, you have to get out, of your little bubble in, in Atlantic Canada to kind of, you know, see what's out there. And, and you do find, you know, there are, are a lot of big players in Alberta and Ontario and BC that, you know, they're, they're a step ahead of you just because of the level of squash that they get to play with every day. Um, yeah. So I found it, it was very valuable, especially as a young kid to get out and be exposed to that and kind of just get out of New Brunswick for a little bit and see, see what some really good squash players look like. Cause when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, it's really helpful to see that and put that into perspective for you. 
That's great segue, actually, because so now let's say you're you're 15 and you've you've played against some of these kids that are you're like, wow, these guys are good. It's interesting to hear that you continue like some kids might shy away when they see, holy smokes, there's a lot of good squash players or hockey players or tennis players out there all over Canada. What? So so now that you did that and you're 15, what was the drive? Like what? How did you? How did you stay motivated or did that motivate you to keep continuing and looking further into squash? Yeah, I think it did kind of motivate me for sure. And I, and I remember a couple matches that I had when I was a young kid quite distinctly where, you know, I'd be out in Ottawa or in Toronto or somewhere playing a tournament and I'd, I'd be playing against someone who clearly has played a lot more squash than me. And they've had their own private coach since they were seven years old and they've been playing for hours every day. And technically they're much better than I am. And, you can tell they've been through all the drills and all the lessons they've, they've learned everything by the textbook. And then I'd end up yeah. eating them. Um, <laughs> and, and they looked much better than me, but there's, you know, you had that little new Brunswicker spirit in here or something to yeah. kind of compensate a little bit for the, maybe the technical stuff. And over time, certainly the technical side of it, you know, you can get that and, and you fill in the technical side of things as you progress. Um, but I did find that, and I think it probably boils down to some of the people that I grew up training with when I was younger. Um, you know, certainly we might be a bit weaker out here in the smaller provinces in terms of, you know, really high level coaching and competition, but, you know, in terms of, you know, commitment or heart or all all that battle type of stuff that you can see that that really helps you push through to win a match. You know, we, we were certainly no, no less uh, better off in that component. Definitely. And uh, the other thing that probably helped you and maybe you didn't realize it was probably playing all those other sports. You were probably more of an athlete, right? Where you could have the most, the way I look at it is you could have the, the best technique in the world, but when it gets a little older as a teenager and into like your twenties, I think being an athlete is, can actually, you know, outshine the technique part of it. I don't know. I could be wrong, but that's my thinking. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I share the same thoughts for sure. I, I think there's a lot of benefits to, to not being a one-trick pony, so to speak. If you if you can play a handful of sports, you know, semi-competently, um, I yeah. think that you're, you're all the better for that. Yeah, so you, you, you played, you continued to play, and then so now tell us a little bit how you're, you're going through high school and you're playing squash like were you looking to continue to play squash after high school what what how did what happened there so it's actually a bit random my my journey to Dartmouth I guess was you know very a lot of stars ended up lining up just right for that to all work out um kind of a very you know kind of happenstance that that I ended up there I had never heard of Dartmouth College in my life I didn't know anything mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> um, essentially, the way it came on my radar, um, and this is just one of the fortunate things for me, was the the head squash coach at Dartmouth when I was kind of in high school was a Canadian, um, and yeah. he was the he was a very well known, well respected Canadian. He was the father of the best squash player in the world at the time, the number one ranked professional squash player. Um, so the son's name was Jonathan Power. He's a very well-known Canadian squash player. Um, his father was John Power, who was my coach, at, or would be my coach. Um, yeah. But because, because he was Canadian, um, he kept probably a closer eye on the Canadian squash scene than a lot of other American squash schools would. Um, yeah. So he would go around to all the larger Canadian junior tournaments kind of throughout the years um, and keep an eye out for any, any players that caught his eye. And I remember kind of, I don't know if I was in grade 10 or 11, but I, I met him 
at some tournaments. I think it was out in Ontario or maybe in Quebec. Um, but kind of, I, I got a bit of exposure to him at some of those tournaments that he was recruiting at. Um, and that's, it just kind of randomly happened that the, the lines of communication opened between us and he kind of sent some feelers out to see if I, I would consider going down to, to Dartmouth, which is in, you know, in Hanover, New Hampshire, uh, to play squash. He, you know, asked some questions, see if I'd have any interest. Um, and I, I certainly did. It was not something that I ever thought too much about, to be honest. Um, but when the, when the opportunity came up um, as being possible, um, it was definitely an intriguing option for me at the time. Um, and like I said, this coach, this particular coach, kind of had the star power. He had the name behind him. <laughs> anyone who was in the, anyone who played squash knew who he was and knew who his son was. Um, so that was definitely, that, that was an appeal. Um, yeah. So that was kind of my, I can't recall if it was grade 10 or 11. It was somewhere in that time frame where I, I started t- talking with him a little bit. Um, and actually my, I think it was my grade 10, grade 10 or 11 summer. Um, he actually had me up on campus to Dartmouth to uh, participate in a squash camp that was going on there. Okay. Yeah. So I actually, I went up on campus at Dartmouth uh, for three, it was a three week long camp with some really, really good coaches um, and some really good players from all over. Most of them are from all over the States, kind of some similar age kids to me at the time. Um, but that was a really good experience to me. I, I, like I said, I was in grade 10 or 11 and I got to, to hang out at Dartmouth college for three weeks to play some really good squash, meet a lot of good people, play with some good coaches, you know, had a lot of fun and see the campus, which was, it's a beautiful campus. Um, Mm -hmm. That was a very kind of eye-opening experience for me and kind of, you know, really drove it home that this could be a really cool, cool option. If, if if I have the chance to go here for university. Yeah. So the camp, uh, it sounds like it was like, almost like, for me, I was a hockey player. It sounds almost like you were going to like a hockey school only for squash at Dartmouth College. Is that fair to say? Is that what it was like? Yeah, yeah. It was. It was kind of. Yeah. A, there was one specific dorm building there for for all the the squash camp people, and it was an overnight camp for three weeks. That there's probably ten coaches and thirty kids or so, and we were all there. You know, twenty four hours a day, you were you were in the doing the squash camp. So you'd wake up early. You'd have three different squash sessions throughout the day. Um, you know, have all your meals and all that stuff. It was, it was a really cool experience. Awesome. So now you, you did that and you're thinking, wow, this looks like I would like to do this. Um, some of the people listening might not know, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure Dartmouth is an Ivy league school, correct? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So like, were you aware of that as a, as a, the, as a squash player at that time, were you even thinking about that stuff? Did you understand like how they, they, the scholarships work there? Can you kind of explain to us how that unfolded for you? Yeah. So I was definitely quite naive at the time. <laughs> and I think I, yeah. I kind of knew it at the time, but looking back on it now, I certainly didn't really know much about, about the school or about how, how even university and college worked in the States, which is, you know, ironically yeah. somewhat different than it does work in Canada. Um, but it, essentially the way that it ends up working out and I, I kind of skipping ahead here in the story a little bit, but when mm-hmm. you, when I ended up going there or decided to go there, the financial piece of it was actually, you know, quite a big, I wouldn't say a concern, but it was certainly a relevant issue um, that I had to kind of think long and hard about. Um, yeah. One of the things, I guess it's a blessing for me to to have the opportunity, but at the time when I was still in high school deciding where I wanted to go, 
I, I was offered a, a full academic scholarship to the University of New Brunswick here kind of in town. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. that's 15 minutes from where I grew up, that that's pretty much home for me. So that was a, a pretty enticing option as well um, for some different reasons. Obviously, the, the financial piece of that would have been pretty good. Um, or I could pay a bunch of money and go to, to Dartmouth in the States and play some really good squash with a really good coach and, and have the, that type of experience. So I was, I ended up having to weigh almost apples and oranges, but two very different paths for, for moving forward. And I think when I think about making that decision, kind of my parents certainly come into my mind a little bit of, you know, I, I think if I was a parent and <laughs> a kid came to me with an option that was $0 or an option that was much more than $0, <laughs> I have, um, yeah. you know, I would have some initial thoughts on that probably. My parents were really, really good. Um, they were kind of extremely accommodating and reasonable and just very understanding about what I was trying to decide and certainly didn't pressure me one way or the other. Um, but just kind of for for the folks listening who may not know, the, the way that the Ivy League system works is a little bit different than some of the other schools in the States. And it's, you know, it can be certainly be a bit restrictive um, one of the big benefits for most people, if they're if they're looking to go play competitive sports in a university in the states, there are a lot of schools where you can you, know, you can certainly earn a, a full scholarship and get a free ride if you're recruited to play a varsity sport, um, which is obviously part of the appeal. And a lot of people hear that, and that's kind of one of the reasons that this gets on their radar. Um, for the Ivy League schools, it's a little bit different. They they have you know they don't give out the athletic scholarships for those types of things. They have instead a, a different type of formula it's financial aid essentially um, and it mm-hmm. all comes down to how much money your parents make at the time so they have this big formula yeah. they input your parents income into it and then if your parents make a lot of money you'll pay a lot of money if they don't make much money you'll you'll pay less money for tuition so it's all kind of prorated in some formula that they have for that yeah so yeah. certainly, you know, the, the which is a blessing because, I, you know, if you look at what the average tuitions are for some of these American schools, it's absolutely absurd, I might say, <laughs> compared to what you yeah. pay to go to school in Canada. I mean, it's, it's, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary to find, you know, 50 or $60,000 a year um, in tuition in American dollars, no less, um, to go to school. Yeah. So... So the financial aid, and I'm glad you brought that up. And I mean, I guess like, and that's what I, when I'm speaking with uh, athletes and their families, like it, you could be in a situation where, you know, maybe your family isn't, you know, rolling in the dough as we'd say, but they're doing well. Okay. Or whatever. It could be a better package to go to an Ivy league school if a school wanted you to play a sport there. And you might actually get more uh, finance through the finance uh, financial aid and it could be a better package than going to UMB if, say, you didn't have a full uh, academic scholarship like you had, right? So yeah. I'm sure there's possibilities where it could work out better for you as well. Is that yeah. from yeah. your experience? Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think that's accurate. And I think, I, I mean, I think, you know, the, 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 the pool of Ivy League schools is pretty small. There's only, you know, eight of them or so. So, you know, there are lots. It, it depends what sport people are playing, too. Um, yeah. you know, if you're, you know, if you're in one of those obscure sports, like I was maybe, you know, the Ivy leagues might be on your radar, but there's, there's so many schools in the States that I like, could, it's just astronomical, the number, I think, I don't know if this is accurate anymore, but I, I looked it up at it one time 
couple of years ago and you know in Canada there's about a hundred universities and colleges and kind of post-secondary education institutions a hundred and in yeah. the states they have about four thousand um, yeah it's ridiculous so, you know they have 10 <laughs> times as many people but they have 40 times as many schools um, yeah so i mean the sheer number of schools is pretty pretty crazy once you go south of the border and i think that does the, the nice thing about that for a canadian athlete growing up is you know no matter what sport you play even if it's not the most mainstream sports you might not have a whole lot of opportunity in Canada that you can see, but when you go down South, if you start looking around down there, just because they have so many schools and so many people, even for the obscure sports like squash or any other ones, you can, there are opportunities out there to be had if you go looking for them. Definitely. So, so you, you, you decided to go to Dartmouth. Um, uh, we'll get back to your getting to Dartmouth here, I guess. Um, did you did you end up getting an academic scholarship? And you don't need to share numbers or totals. Or I'm just curious, did you get that as well too, or was it how did how? So what? I guess you were talking about you were speaking with your parents. You had this to go to UMB, or you could go here. So explain how that all unfolded. So to be completely honest, I don't recall exactly what the numbers were, or even what what the scholarships that we were dealing with at the time was. Yeah. Um, I know kind of we, my parents and I sat down and, and went through the numbers and kind of compared the Dartmouth route to the, to the UNB route. Um, but yeah. in terms of kind of the, the, the scholarship details are a little fuzzy to me at the moment. I, I don't really remember. Um, I yeah. just kind of, I remember the, the Dartmouth kind of numbers and the UNB numbers. And even though the Dartmouth numbers was, you know, quite a bit more than the zero dollars to go to UNB. Yeah. Um, you know, there was enough upside there for me, or at least enough intrigue to to kind of give it a shot and see what the experience would be like um, to kind of to lean me towards that direction. Yeah. So you, you go to Dartmouth. So explain to me what uh, life on campus as a squash uh, player is like once you get to school there. Well, I'd, I'd be very happy to do that if, if I just rewind just for a quick second. I think something oh, yeah. that might be relevant for, for people to hear is kind of, you know, the, the tuition piece of it is certainly one thing. But even if you go back, rewind a little bit from that, um, kind of the, the whole SAT and the admissions process. Um, oh, great idea. Yes, but, definitely. Explain that, Adam. I kind of, when I was kind of preparing for this this call, I, I was kind of thinking of some of the, some of the obstacles that, that you deal with or some of the things that, that going to school in the States kind of puts on your radar that going to school in Canada wouldn't. Um, and the SATs is kind of certainly one of the things that came to my mind. Um, and I, I definitely remember, I kind of just to give you a quick little story here about one of my experiences with the SATs, um, which is, I think it's funny to me looking back now, I don't know if it was funny at the time. Um, but I remember after I had gone to that three week summer camp, um, to play squash at Dartmouth kind of in, in one of my summers in high school. Um, I got invited back to play. There was just a junior tournament there throughout the year in, in the fall of you know, my grade 11 year or so. So I went, I went back to Dartmouth to play in this tournament. It's you know a Friday, Saturday, Sunday type of tournament. And I'd, by this point, I knew the coach there pretty well since I had spent a couple of weeks with them and you know, shared a bunch of calls and emails leading up to that. So I was in, in Hanover, New Hampshire for the squash tournament, kind of a weekend tournament. And the Friday of the tournament, I think I had a match. And then after the match, I was, I sat down and was just talking to this, the Dartmouth squash coach. 
And, you know, he was kind of putting it to me a little more there of, you know, are you, are you serious about applying here? And, you know, at that point, I kind of was was leaning that way and said, yeah, I think I'm, I'm certainly going to apply. Um, and then he kind of said, you know, well, you know, you have to write your SATs to come to school here. And I said, sure, of course, I know that. Um, I hadn't really thought too much about it, but I knew that I had, it was a step I would have to take. And he kind of said, well, you know, if you want to apply here for the year after you graduate, the next chance to write, the last chance for you to write your SATs is tomorrow morning. <laughs> so here, here I am in, in New Hampshire to play a squash tournament. It's a Friday night. Um, and I literally just found out I have to write the SATs in a few hours, kind of the next morning. Um, so I actually wrote my SATs in Hanover High School um, the next morning. Um, my, the coach at the time gave me a bunch of pencils and a calculator. Um, and yeah. I ran over to the high school the next morning and wrote the test. I, I had no idea what the format was. I had never, you know, thought too much about it um, at all. Um, so, so I wrote the test and I remember finishing and kind of running back over to the squash courts and having to play a match because I was almost late for my match. Um, so that was kind <laughs> of my, my SAT experience. And I didn't know at the time, but you quickly find out afterwards that if you're an American student, you know, in middle school, high school, whatever, you write your SATs, you know, 10 times. You start them really young. You write them in your grade six because you can write them as, at least you could back then, you write them as many times as you want to try to get your highest score. Um, so yeah. if, if you were an American student, you've, you've written the test, you know, 10 times already and you've taken hundreds of practice tests and done all this studying. And then here I was just finding out kind of, you know, 10 hours before the test that I had to write this darn thing. So I was, I was, I wasn't as prepared as most of the other people writing. I, let's just say that. Wow. Well, I'm going to say that's amazing story, actually, because I don't know what you would have needed back then, but I'm pretty sure to get into Dartmouth College at the time, you would have had to have a pretty good mark in your SATs. Like I know right now it's probably between 1400 and 1560 or something out of 1600, right? Yeah, well, long story short, just to, to sum it up, I did not do outstanding on the SATs. <laughs> um, okay. But luckily enough, I mean, look, all you need to do is good enough to get in. So all yeah. things considered, I did enough to get accepted. Um, and that's really all you need. I, to, be, to be fair I, and to be a little bit blunt against myself, I, I didn't run into too many people at Dartmouth while I was there that I heard that got a worse score than I did at the SATs. So, <laughs> yeah. I did not do outstanding, but I certainly, I squeaked by and did it. I did well enough anyway. So, so I'll take it. Well, still impressive considering how you had to take the, uh, take the test. So well done. <laughs> well, yeah. Why write it more than once if you don't have to? That's right. It probably was a blessing in disguise maybe. <laughs> so did, so saying that, it, did they use a lot of your grade 12 marks or how, what was Dartmouth's process there to, to make sure that you were uh, capable to, uh, to, to do the schooling at Dartmouth college? Uh, you know, how, how did that work? Yeah. And I think, I think what, what helped me, cause like I said, uh, you know, my SAT marks weren't going to knock anyone's socks off. I think kind of what saved my application was my high school resume at the time was, was quite strong. Um, yeah. I, I had a lot of focus on academics and athletics back then, but I was quite involved in both um, and, and did a lot of things to kind of that, that would look good on a resume. You know, my my grades were all quite good. I was captain of a couple of sports teams and 
had a bunch of extracurriculars, but you know, a lot of the resumes or a lot of the applications going across most college or university admissions desks probably are, are jam packed with all the same type of things. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was kind of my saving grace was I think, you know, leaving high school, my, my high school uh, resume, if you want to call it that was, was pretty strong. So I'm not, I think looking back, that probably helped prop up, you know, a, a weaker SAT score. Um, and I know at Dartmouth specifically, I, I've had a, had the conversation with the squash coach was, you know, the way that they, their admissions process works is, you know, it certainly is a plus if, if there's a, a coach of a sports team that, that has you on their list of, you know, I'm recruiting this person. I really want him to come, come play on my team. So let's please admit this person to the school. Um, yeah, that type of thing. They obviously look favorably on it, but I know kind of at Dharma specifically, you have to get in on your own merits above and beyond that. Um, and if you do, if you do satisfy the, the requirements that for admission on your own, then certainly you're in pretty good shape if, if you're on one of the coaches list to, to be recruited, but, but that's not yeah. going to save you if you don't meet the other, the other requirements, unfortunately. Oh, that's good information for people listening. So obviously marks, you know, no, I mean, obviously going to an Ivy league school, your marks are, you know, it's, 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 it's more difficult. You have to have high quality marks. Um, but it's good feedback to know that, you know, you can still, you don't have to be amazing on your SATs, but you can also be very uh, well-rounded as it sounds like you were Adam to, to, you know, potentially get into one of these schools. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, if it'll help anyone listening out there, I would certainly not take my approach to the SATs, <laughs> even, though I, <laughs> yeah. even though I was thrust into it somewhat on my, you know, out of my control. I probably could have been, yeah. could have been a bit more proactive and, and looking into that a bit earlier. So I would certainly say the SATs do warrant a little bit more preparation than, than I gave them credit for. So it's not a bad idea to, to do some studying beforehand. Yeah, maybe like you mentioned also, uh, which I talk to a lot of athletes about is maybe do some practice, you know, take it. And if you do well, great. But if not, do it in grade 10, do it in grade 11, do it in grade 12, right? So you have a few kicks at the can almost. Yeah, and I think looking back on it now too, I think another another positive thing that people can think about for their, you know, for their applications and when they're when they're kind of putting their story together to to present to a school and say why they should be accepted is, you know, looking at me, I came from Ormukta, New Brunswick, a really small town. Um, you know, I think you can turn those types of backgrounds and those type of experiences into, into positives for your application. I think there, there are certain things that I'm sure because of that background and that upbringing, I think probably set me apart a little bit in some ways from, from a lot of the big city people that were, were applying to Dartmouth. Yeah, it's it's all the way and how you present your story, right? Yeah. 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 So that's a that's awesome information. So you you finally get to Dartmouth now. I just I would love to hear a little bit about what the 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 day you know or a week at Dartmouth College looked like for you uh, while playing squash. Yeah, that that's that's one of the more interesting pieces, and I think I, I think varsity athletes don't get quite enough credit for for the, the sheer amount of hours and time that they put into just getting by, you know, with their academics and their athletics together. Um, mm-hmm. Cause the time demand is, is pretty significant. Um, you know, I know a lot of people kind of when I was going through Dartmouth that, you know, the academics alone was, you know, it takes up 
a good chunk of your day and people are people who are just there to, to go to class and, and do the academic side of it, you know, they, they don't have enough hours in the day to do what they need to do. Um, so yeah. when you add on top of it, kind of, you know, six days a week, at least of training or practice or weights or cardio or whatever, whatever the arrangement was at the time, you know, you're probably looking three hours a day, six days a week of extra time that you need to, to dedicate towards your sport and being with your team and a lot of the other other time consuming things that go, you know, part and parcel with, with being on a team. Um, and so that was, that was one of the big things that I, I learned to deal with, but it was, it was quite difficult, especially the first year where it's, it's quite a difference from your, your nice cushy high school life. <laughs> I found where yeah. it was very, it <laughs> yeah. was a very drastic difference in terms of the time commitment and the work that you had to put in um, to kind of, you know, see results. Yeah. So, as, so would you guys, you guys were doing something for squash every day or six days of the week, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So we had yeah. kind of our, our typical approach was, you know, like a, a typical week would be um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, you'd have kind of just squash training. So you do encore drills and, you know, probably some cardio at the end and then Tuesday, yeah. Thursday, we'd have kind of weightlifting in the morning, kind of really early in the morning weightlifting, and then a little bit less of a, an on-court session in the afternoon. So you're on court pretty much every day, no matter what. And then yeah. you kind of rotate every other day with either hard cardio or, or weights. Um, okay. And that's kind of when you're just training, but the see when you're actually in season for probably three, three months or so, you're pretty much away somewhere or you have matches at home pretty much every weekend. Um, so, so that was another big thing when you think about, you know, time that you're missing, especially when you're on the road, when you're on a bus for three days, kind of traveling around the different schools, it's pretty exhausting. And you're, you know, that's without the squash side of it too. Yeah. Yeah. How does the, the matches, so how does that work in squash? Like I know in tennis, they, they play like team tennis in a way where they have doubles and singles, uh, do you, is it like total points per singles matches in squash? I, it's, it's all new to me. So I'd like to hear how that works too. Yeah. So, so the scoring is actually, I think the way that squash in university is scored is one of the things that makes it, makes it really fun to play because squash obviously is an individual sport. You're, you're competing by yourself out there. It's one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but the way that it's set up in the universities is, you know, if Dartmouth is playing Harvard, for example, both schools have nine players. So there's a, there's a number one, a number two, all the way up to nine. Um, yeah. the, the number one from the schools play each other. The number twos play each other. So forth. So you play your corresponding number on the other team. Um, and of those nine matches, whichever school wins five or more of them wins the match in general. Okay. Yeah. So what I really liked about that was I grew up playing squash, obviously, and it's, you know, there's not really any team element to it. Your your whole, your you know, you train with other people, but your competitions are all by yourself. It's you know, you're the only one that matters. Um, yeah. What I really liked about squash at the university level was it did have that team component to it. So you still you're still on court competing by yourself, but your like whether your team wins or loses, you're you you do have that team dynamic to it. So I really liked that, like the camaraderie and the the team the teammates is a really important part of your experience. That's awesome. So when you start, were you able to climb the, 
the the uh, positioning on your team through the years? I, like, uh, did you play all four years, or how did that work? Yeah, so I played all four years, and I was at, I was yeah. pretty pretty consistently in the. I was kind of at the same spot in the lineup most of the time. Yeah. Um, usually, so out of the nine, there's nine starting positions, probably. 14 or 15 or so people on the team, but the, the top yeah. is kind of your starting lineup. And yeah. I was usually, I was typically around three. Um, yeah. I, I played two sometimes I played four sometimes. Um, but that was, I would say three would be my average kind of position in the lineup. Um, and actually the, the way that we kind of decided your, your position on the, on the team was actually one of the more stressful parts of the season every year. Um, cause the, the way you're, you have to do it is every, basically every week that you're not competing against another school, you have to have, they call them challenge matches and you play. So if you're currently number two in the ladder of the team, you'll either play the number one or the number three, you'll play either one up or one down. Um, yeah. and depending how you do, you might switch spots one way or the other. Um, so that was every week we weren't competing. You'd be, you'd be having a really hard match with someone on your team to decide what, position you'd play in the lineup during the next match that's awesome though because it keeps you very competitive throughout the whole season eh? yeah and i'd say kind of i don't think anyone ever played harder than when they were playing their own teammates for their (laughs) their spot like if you wanted to see people really give their all that was when it would happen they were kind of the more more stressful and more competitive matches i would have seen for sure yeah, that's awesome. So when you what was your what were you taking actually for your uh, degree at, at Dartmouth when you started? So that's another example that highlights how naive I was at the time. Um, <laughs> when I when I graduated from Mormucto High School, my my goal in the back of my head was I was going to get a, a Bachelor of Science degree and go on to be a physiotherapist or, or an optometrist. That, those are kind of my two potential career paths. Um, yeah. I, then I get to Dartmouth and should have found this out earlier, but you quickly find out that it's a liberal, liberal arts college. Um, <laughs> so the only thing that you're going to get when you graduate, no matter what you take, is a Bachelor of Arts. Um, yeah. So, so I, I initially, you, you can get a Bachelor of Arts in biology or chemistry or whatever it is, which sounds kind of funny when you tell that to a Canadian back home that I, you know, I, I'm getting a BA in chemistry. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I initially started because I still wanted to do kind of my initial plan as much as I could. I, I took some biology courses, um, but didn't really fall in love with those. And I ended up kind of shifting my my career path and my academic interest a little bit. I ended up with a psychology degree. Um, so okay. I ended up with a BA in psychology and I minored in economics. Um, yeah. And those are basically the, the main reason I turned to psychology was that was the class that I didn't mind doing my readings. <laughs> I, I actually yeah. found material somewhat interesting. So every other course I took, it was kind of, it was slave work to get through my readings for, for the class, but the psychology ones I could do, I could get through them and they were, they were somewhat interesting. So that I, that's kind of where I, where I wanted to go. That's very interesting, but see, it shows, Oh, I mean, you, you kind of found what you enjoyed at the time and found a path and made the best out of it. Right. For sure. And it's, it's it's really strange, too. I mentioned kind of Dartmouth being a liberal arts school where, you know, no matter what, you're going to get a B.A. at the end of the day. There's still lots of people that graduate from Dartmouth with a B.A. in chemistry or biology or physics and go on to med school. Like it's it's not something that yeah. I feel like it, it takes a bit of a mental switch from 
from what you're used to hearing about, especially here in New Brunswick, um, you know, you get the Bachelor of Science or the Bachelor of Arts. Yeah. It's very divided, um, but kind of it, it's not so limiting, at least in the States, through my experience. There's a lot of people that got a Bachelor of Arts in undergrad and went right on to med school. Yeah. So did, when you were done your four years, were you thinking of ever playing a pro squash career or did you know I'm going, here's my next steps? What, what happened after that? Um, I may have considered it a little bit, not for too long. Um, kind of yeah. one of the downsides of squash, you know, even today to some extent, but especially back then, and this is in the 2008 time period um, when I graduated the, uh, I mean, to be a professional squash player in one of those fringe sports like squash, I mean, you have to be, you know, world-class, you know, top 10 player in the world to, to make decent money enough to, to justify doing it full time. Um, yeah. So it was a bit of a, it's a, it's a tough sport to jump into um, unless you're one of those world-class talents, which I, I certainly was not. Um, so, I mean, that, it's one of those ideas that you, you throw around a little bit, but it, I didn't really put too much, too much weight on it. Didn't consider it too strongly. The thing I did consider a little bit more in depth was kind of staying involved in some capacity and maybe being a, a squash pro at a private club or something like that and give lessons yeah. and, and run junior programs and run camps and things like that. That, that had a bit more appeal to me. Um, and I did a bit of that sort of thing, um, but I never, I'd never really jumped into it as kind of my, my career choice. I didn't think that's kind of where I wanted to go. So uh, you just did you decide to come back home or what was your next steps there for schooling, I guess, afterwards? So I when I graduated in 2008 um, as a young little naive person, fresh, fresh out of school, my my goal at the time was actually to work for an advertising company. You know, I had my psychology yeah. degree um, and I was interested in advertising and marketing and those kind of kinds of things. Um, so I actually ended up right after school, um, I, I got a job in Boston um, and I worked for a, a little advertising agency there. Um, I don't know how your memory is of 2008, but the economy in the U.S. at the time wasn't booming. Um, yeah. It was kind of the, the high point of the recession um, at the time. So kind of it was I was extremely lucky to find a job at all. Um, and kind of long story short, I was there for about a year in Boston and it wasn't great. I mean, the, the job was kind of what I wanted to do, but it was just the whole situation in the States was, was pretty depressing at the time. Um, yeah. so I was there for about a year and then my company had some, some pretty big layoffs, um, kind of, you know, 20% of their workforce was just cut one morning. Um, and I, I happened to be in that 20%, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> um, which was a pretty common occurrence at the time. It certainly wasn't unusual for that sort of thing to be happening back then. And I, so I, I, that happened to me. I got kind of lost the job. I found myself as a, like I said, a naive little one year out of university with no job. You're in the States, you know, with no, no visa and don't know what to do. Um, so I was, I was kind of thinking about what to do. And I ended up just deciding to, to come back home um, and, and try to figure it out back here. Um, yeah. So I moved back home, I actually moved back into my parents' basement in Normukto. Um, spent mm -hmm. a couple of months back there, probably six or seven months, actually a very long six or seven months, um, probably longer for my parents than me. Um, yeah. but, and actually it was, I was just there trying to sort out what I wanted to do next when I kind of, again, randomly just decided to, you know, what about law school? Um, <laughs> and to, to tie it back to my, my SAT story. So to get into law school, you need to write your LSATs. 
Um, yes. I had another harrowing experience with my LSAT um, uh. because I, I randomly decided to thought of law school for the first time as a possibility kind of in, you know, mid to late January one year. Um, and once I decided to go for it, I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds like something I'd like to do. I, I learned that the last time I could write my LSATs was in two weeks from then. Um, so this time was a bit better. I had two weeks to prepare, um, yeah. but two weeks to prepare for the LSAT is not, not a lot of time. I would certainly recommend people take more if they're, if they're going to go that yeah. way. <laughs> um, so for some reason, whether it's my fault or not, I kept finding myself in those types of positions where I was dreadfully unprepared for these standardized tests. Um, so I, I ended up, I, I wrote the LSATs kind of in two weeks after deciding to go to law school and same story again. I didn't blow anyone's socks off on the LSATs, but I did well enough again, once again, to, to kind of get in and that's all that really matters. So once again, I'll, I'll take it and run with it. That's, you know, you talk about being unprepared, but I'll tell you, I think what probably won you the battles was that you were willing to do whatever you felt like you wanted to at the time and you went for it. Right. I, I, that's yeah. what it sounds like anyway, which is awesome. Yeah. I mean, and, and kind of some people get paralyzed by having so much time to prepare for things too. If you're, if you're planning to take the LSAT in eight months, then it's going to be a pretty stressful eight months. I only had to deal with it for two weeks, so I'm kind of lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, listen, we're, we're, we've been on here for a while now and I want to, you know, appreciate your time here. I do have one more question for you and we kind of touched on, you've touched on a lot of amazing information here that I, I know everybody that's going to be listening is going to love it. Um, but is there one thing or, and you've already given a lot, but is there one thing to uh, a student athlete who might be in grade nine or 10 or 11 or 12 right now playing a sport? What would you like, you know? What do you recommend, uh, especially from Atlantic Canada, is there one thing that you recommend uh, athletes at that age do if they, if they want to look at something like pursuing an NCAA career? Well, I think the first thing, like the, the main thing that comes to mind for me is probably something that, that was lacking when I was looking into this. And, and my just to put everything into perspective time-wise for people, when I was looking to go to school in the States was probably in the 2002, 2003 time period that's when I was applying to schools and kind of trying to get myself together and and make those types of decisions so at that point you know Facebook and LinkedIn weren't a thing yet there was no all the social yeah. networks that we have today that wasn't that wasn't an option for us back then so I I think you know when I think about people today you know take someone in grade nine they're so technologically advanced compared to where I was when I was in grade nine um, there's so much information at their fingertips I'm almost a bit jealous of of the opportunities and the, the things that they can reach just sitting at their, at their computer. And I think yeah. the main thing that I would kind of recommend for someone kind of in that position now is, is just to do some digging and see what's out there. Um, you know, I, I think especially depending on what sport you're playing or what sport you're passionate about, you know, if you play one of the more mainstream sports, if you play, you know, hockey or basketball, you know, they're, they're certainly look in Canada for those types of sports. I mean, they those are sports that you can certainly play in university in Canada. Um, mm -hmm. You know, look, look in the States too, but it's certainly if you, you know, if you're a squash player, a tennis player, a swimmer, a rower, you know, if you're a golfer, those, those types of, you know, less mainstream sports, I think you, you, there's a lot of doors that can be open for you. If you, if you look and, you know, going South of the border to the States is, I think people don't appreciate just how many opportunities there are there 
Um, there's so many schools or so many teams, so many scholarship opportunities and kind of financial incentives. People, there's so many people recruiting to, to look for good talent and, and, you know, Canadians, I think certainly is a pretty athletic as a country. So I think there's lots of opportunities, yeah. but I think, you know, people in grade nine or 10 or 11 take advantage of all the tools you have with, with all the social networking, with everything online these days. And, you know, services like the one you're providing, you know, those types of resources weren't around when I was going through the process. And a lot of it was unknown to us at the time. So I think, I think there is a lot of stuff out there that people can look to, to, to get guidance, to get advice and to see not only what schools there are out there, but, you know, to, to get some help putting their applications together, how to deal with the visa and the immigration stuff. There's, there's so many components that we kind of had to navigate through a little bit blindly. And I think yeah. there, there's a lot there these days for, for some of these kids to, to really have a bit more of a smoother process. Definitely. And that's why I think it is important to kind of, and you touched on it is it seems crazy to think about in grade nine, but most kids know that they love a sport and they maybe want to pursue it. I think at that age, some don't, but it is important to kind of get on it uh, sooner than later. Cause I think what a lot of kids, especially in Atlanta, Canada, I think what I've seen is that one, they kind of don't even know of the options. So they may be middle of the pack sort of athlete in the sport they love and decide, you know what, I'm not going anywhere, and they kind of fizzle out of the sport. Or two, they wait and think, oh, I'm going to get noticed or someone's going to see me, and I'll just keep waiting and waiting, and then it's grade 12, and then all of a sudden they haven't heard anything, and then it's like, whoa, they're, they're behind the eight ball. So yeah. it seems like like you touched on, you, you, you do need to kind of – I think from where we're at in Atlanta, Canada, small area, you got to – you got to put yourself out there and, and introduce yourself to all these schools and coaches, which you kind of touched on. Right. And, and I you think, were lucky. Well, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think another, another kind of key audience that's important to talk to is not just the, the people in grade nine or 10 or 11 that are looking, but their parents too. Um, yeah. Have almost in the same boat when, when I was dealing with this years ago with my parents, you know, when I was in grade nine, 10, 11, they were trying to help me navigate. There were, there were no resources for them either. So, as blind as I thought I was here were my parents kind of trying to trying to help me through the process, but there wasn't much there to help them either. So I think that's another good pool of people where, you know, someone like yourself who has the, has the knowledge and the background and what needs to be done. Not only do you help the kids kind of figure, figure out what they need to do, but I'm sure the parents have just as many questions and unknowns that, that you could help fill in the blanks for too. So I, I think parents is another, another key audience of, of people that are, are ripe for, for some help and some guidance. Oh, big time. And they're, they're definitely a big part of the solution and helping kids find a way to, to get to NCAA or college or U sports or whatever. Right. So no, you're definitely 100% agree with that. Yeah. And, and plus, awesome. too, I was just going to say really quickly, I mean, probably most of the kids who have, you know, who have been involved in sports for years through their schooling times and are considering going to play sports after high school, they probably have the type of parents who have been supporting them throughout that process already. So, so they'd be the, the perfect type of parents to, to want to help their kids kind of get to the next level as well. So I'm sure they probably have the interest to, to move forward with that too. Yeah. Parents are, uh, well, as most of us know, are a big part of the equation, right? So uh, definitely. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do is like you mentioned, help parents. It's probably even more parents that I talk with initially. And then the child is involved as we move along in the process, but it's the parents who are reaching out 
knowing that there's opportunities out there, but just don't know how to get there. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, um, I appreciate the time, Adam. This has been an amazing uh, conversation and lots of great information for us to share. So thanks for being on the, on the podcast. Uh, absolute pleasure to have you and uh, thank you again. No, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. There you have it, my friends. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. Make sure to share it with your friends. Spread the inspiration. The best thing you can do today is to listen and consume and learn something new for yourself and develop your mind, develop your ability to grow, to think differently. Adam definitely gave us that today. Oh yeah, one other thing. Thanks for listening to the Start Your Journey podcast. If you've made it this far, I'll take that you enjoyed the show. In return, I'd love if you would leave a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, or Anchor. Subscribe while you're there, and I'll catch you for the next episode. Oh yeah, and if you are listening on the Anchor app, click the message button and leave me a voice message. Thanks again, and I really appreciate your feedback and support.